Hello, everyone. This is Headcase Podcast. I am Stephanie Hoffman. As you all know, I'm here with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She is located in Fayetteville, Arkansas, correct? <laughs> um, she's a clinical psychologist and has been practicing for 26 years. So I'm so happy that I was able to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Now that it's 2020, it's actually 27 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, 27 years. That's true. Yeah, um, so, yeah. <laughs> so what made you go into this practice? Oh, gosh. Uh, Stephanie, I, I had gotten some really good therapy for one thing in my 20s and really respected the profession of um, psychology because of what it could offer to people and what it offered to me. Right. So when I got the opportunity, I was actually a professional singer in my 20s. I was a jingle singer. And wow. um, I got interested in music therapy, went that route for a while, and then discovered that I wanted to study more deeply the things that could trouble people and lead them into distorted thinking and some pretty unhappy times and depression, anxiety, et cetera. Right. Um, so I somewhat miraculously got into a Ph.D. program, and I got my Ph.D. from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in, wow, 19, let me see, yeah, 1992. Wow. And then we, my husband and I moved here to Arkansas. So it took me nine years. I was closing down. I was also a, a, um, a nightclub singer. And so from uh, I was closing down the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas at 1 o'clock in the morning. And then nine years later, I was seeing my first patient. So it was Wow. That's amazing. So you specialize yeah. in depression, anxiety, and relationship issues and things like that. That's what I talk a lot about, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I've always had a fairly general practice. I've seen a lot of couples. I love doing couples work and have received some special training in that, in fact, a fair amount. And um, I depression and anxiety. I mean, anxiety is the number one mental health problem in the United States and somewhat even internationally. And then right. depression is something that, um, you know, so many people are plagued with and it is uh, – you know, there is help, and that's the great news is that for both of those issues, there are specific treatment techniques and things that really can help a lot. Um, and so people don't have to feel that they're, you know, handling something all by themselves. You know, a lot of the meta analyses show that, you know, especially with depression, that there's a combination of medication and exercise and talk therapy that can be very helpful as, as far as, you know, mindfulness and all kinds of meditation. I do hypnosis. Right. Um, so there are lots of, of great therapeutic techniques out there that are uh, research-oriented and based and that can really be effective. Wow. Okay. So I actually stumbled upon an article you wrote um, about perfectly hidden the way depression. A lot of people find me. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, me I stumbled upon it. Yeah, it was totally <laughs> I need to talk to my marketing people. <laughs> yeah. Which is good. It means your name is out there, but I was totally enthralled by this article because I felt personally like I related to it a lot um about perfectly mm -hmm. hidden depression and you've written mm -hmm. now a book about it and everything, but I would love to hear like what drew you to write that book and and about this particular topic? Sure. 
Um, well, I'm glad you stumbled upon it. Yeah. You're not the only one, and I, I cannot tell you how many emails and I've gotten from people now over the last five to six years since I've been writing about it telling me the same thing. I've never heard anybody talking about this. What is this? How do you know what it is? How did you know what I was doing? You're right. inside my head. <laughs> you know, exactly. Kind of um, I actually tell a story at the beginning of the book about a young woman that I had diagnosed primarily with anxiety mm-hmm. who was in my practice. And and um, she revealed certain things to me when after I'd asked. But I got a call from her husband at one point, and he was quite concerned about her. And I kind of, over the phone, I said, well, you know, I she hasn't looked very depressed to me and he goes there's something wrong there's something wrong well he was out of town and on his way back and this is a small town and they were actually neighbors of mine and so I he gave me the garage code into their house I couldn't get her attention and she was at home trying to die by suicide so um she was one of the first cases that I began seeing you know what can look like just a lot of uh, busyness and feeling overwhelmed and feeling anxious, uh, even panicked at times, social anxiety can hide or can mask uh, or sort of the, she had a perfect looking life. She had, she had a great job. She had two, you know, two children, lovely children, happy marriage, quote unquote. And yet you know, she was inwardly struggling and right. having an extremely difficult time opening up about it right? fully. So um, I began looking for that in people saying, you know, is there a difference between people who come in for therapy that look at you and go, I'm really depressed and I have dark thoughts or I have times when I can't think straight or I you know, cry all the time, or I'm angry all the time. And those people, and and they have what I term more classic depression. They don't have pleasure and things that are, were previously pleasurable. Mm -hmm. People notice that they're depressed. Um, They can't get their focus on things. I mean, whatever it is. And they feel hopeless about getting better. I'm not talking about those people. Now, those people, Stephanie, are also people who, will go to work and put a smile on their face and, and make the best of it. Right. There are plenty of people with classic depression that do that. Right. But I'm talking to another group of people, which are people that would say, I don't have a right to be depressed. I have so many blessings in my life. I've got these wonderful kids or this wonderful job or I've got my health or you know, I have my faith or whatever it is that they are counting as their blessings. Right. And, but they, they ignore or discount or even flat out deny any kind of trauma or pain in their lives. They will look at you as if you're crazy when you say, well, you know, I wonder if you could be depressed, not me. They're even ashamed of thinking of themselves as depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, I had one woman tell me last year or two years ago, that one morning and two or three o'clock in the morning, she couldn't sleep and she identified with perfectly hidden depression. And she said, I, I Googled depression and looked at the symptoms and I felt this immediate sense of deep, deep shame right. that I'd even looked because I didn't fit any of those criteria. Um, and that is what I find that mental health professionals, um, 
everyone from social workers to psychologists to psychiatrists will miss this because we tend to see it as people who are that work too hard, that are um, overly uh, that they, they want to please others, they mm-hmm. are very driven. That you know we might say, "Gosh, you just need to take a break," or you, you know, "You need to sleep better or take care of yourself better," and we'll miss this underlying despair and shame and loneliness and emptiness. Um, right. And I, I, the way I, I just came up with the term "perfectly hidden depression" myself when I was writing a blog post back in April of 2014, where I was trying to describe the difference between these people and people who had classic depression. Well, at that time, my blog posts were, I don't know, 50 shares or something like that. And I went, it went viral. Wow. I didn't know what was happening. And then I was writing for the Huffington Post at the time as well, and they wanted to put it on their site, in which they did, and I had forgotten that I had left my email on the bottom of the post, and literally within 24 hours, I had hundreds of emails from people saying, I've never heard of this, and kind of what I've said before to you a few minutes ago. Yeah. So that spurred me into really looking further into the topic. So do you think that the distinction between a perfectly hidden depression and you know, your kind of standard depression is more biological rather than situational? No. Um, of course, I'm not a neuro a neurologist right. or a, a neuroscience researcher. Um, of course, there are all kinds of – there's all kinds of research going on right now about what are the true causes of depression – um, no, in fact, I think if anything, um, what has happened is these people, probably mostly as children, although I have worked with some that seem to have adopted this kind of strategy more as teenagers or young adults, something has happened to them. Right. Either they grew up in a family where feelings weren't allowed to be discussed if they were at all painful. Uh, I had a patient telling me yesterday that one of his favorite things is, you know, that this thing his dad said all the time is if you expect the worst, you won't be disappointed. And things like, you know, rub some dirt in it and let's go. Or, you know, you're just whining, quit it. Um, You know, whatever. Even if it was real grief and real sadness and real fear that those feelings just weren't allowed. Or you could have grown up in an abusive family where you were ridiculed. You could have grown up in a family where you felt like you were only um, valued for your accomplishment. Um, right. You could have grown up in a family where you had an alcoholic parent who you act- you actually had to grow up very fast and your own feelings seemed no longer important because it was your job to take care of other people. There are lots of roads to Rome, as they say, as far as perfectly hidden depression is concerned. In my opinion, and from my perspective, again, perfectly hidden depression is not a diagnosis. Right. It's a syndrome of behaviors and beliefs that I've tried to define that I'm still learning about, actually, um, and that I'm trying to describe something that a, a way of life that um, a belief system and a, and a behavior system that can can work to keep at bay any kind of depression, sadness, 
even memories of trauma, experience of trauma, experience of abuse, bullying, anything it could have been, that people have gotten so good at what's called compartmentalization in right. psychology, meaning you just shove feelings away yeah. and, and you, where they're not even conscious to you anymore. And the group of people I'm trying to reach are these people right. um, that literally may not even be aware of what they're doing. It has become so automatic and so unconscious until they hear the term perfectly hidden depression and they go, oh, wow, could this be me? Yeah, kind of you clicks. Know? Yeah, because I'm thinking about people who do commit suicide and then their loved ones around them say that they've you know, they were so happy. I never suspected right. anything like this would ever happen to them. And I wonder if it becomes, right. it's it's so hidden until the point where they can't handle it anymore or compartmentalize. And then that's when it goes to another level. Well, you know, I, there have been books written about the point at which people can rationalize or justify or they're just so hopeless they can see no other way out other than dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. But I think you're exactly right. At this point, sadly, we probably all know someone who, be it a friend, be it a, a, a relative, be it someone's child, be it a teacher or a coach or a, a person who is highly admired in the community, and they, they kill themselves. In fact, there was a, a mother who reached out to me quite poignantly telling me the story of her 18-year-old senior in high school who had been accepted to a great college, who was very popular, you know, the quarterback or something, I don't know, maybe he was played soccer, I can't remember, but he was heavy into sports and very well-liked, very engaged, and he told someone he'd gone to camp with, he was texting her, and over a fairly long period of time told her, now she was from another city, mm -hmm that uh, he was going more and more depressed and more and more suicidal. She contacted the high school counselor. The high school counselor called this young man in, and he denied it. He said, oh, she's just worried. Now it's just teenage angst and blah, 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 blah. And the, and the counselor looked at him and said, well, you know, I, it didn't seem to me that you were depressed because you're just always laughing and joking it up, and, you know, you have lots of friends. And right. so... Nothing was said, and the parents weren't contacted. Three weeks later, the young man hung himself. Oh my gosh! And there are, and I've been contacted by reporters and other parents and other people who've told me very similar stories. Right. Um, and if your listeners know, then our suicide rates, both in the United States and internationally, are going way up. Yeah. Um, and and also, there's some great Canadian researchers, Gordon Flett and Paul Hewitt, and others who are beginning to find this connection between what they call socially prescribed perfectionism, meaning that you have to live up constantly the expectations of others, and those expectations are always rising. Right. And so it's that kind of perfectionism is highly connected with suicidality. Wow. And yeah. do you think that these people in going through all of these changes once they open up to someone and then that person might tell someone else that it becomes too real for them, that they don't want to, if, if that many people know, and then they have to actually face it and do something about it, that it's like too much of a real 
diagnosis that they can't handle and that's almost like shameful for them? You know, that's a, certainly a potential. I think that's a good thought. Um, and one that almost you would wonder, so does somehow the secret being out instigate more pressure right. to hide? Um, I think that at least the people that have come to see me have never told anyone right. that they uh, have thoughts of driving off the road or um, just, you know, sometimes it's just thoughts of welcome death, which I don't mean to say just because those are obviously dangerous, but um, there's no actual plan. But there is thoughts of, you know, if I just died, it, it, it would be better. Right. So I I think there are a lot of people who have those thoughts who never tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, often the other surprising thing and very sad thing is that these people might open up. Uh, for example, I, I have a, I'm a I'm fairly introverted, but I probably a lot of people would think I'm very extroverted. I've learned how to be very social mm-hmm. and. I got it in my head one day, and I also have panic disorder. Um, and so I got it in my head one day to tell this guy that I've known now for years. And we, we don't have a close relationship, but we were sitting and talking, and I said, you know, I, I suffer from panic disorder. I get really socially anxious. That we, we tailgate together, and I said, you know, I, I get pretty anxious at these things. And he started laughing. He goes, you? you got to be kidding. Wow. So I shut up, <laughs> you know. I wasn't about to say anything else. Well, what if I were depressed? Right. What if I were suicidal? I don't like being anxious, but, you know, if I tried to open up and then I got shut down, which a lot of people tell me they do. And again, that's kind of what can happen in therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the, the woman that I was seeing that I found in her home may have felt like I didn't get her, like I wasn't scratching the surface of what was going on. Right. And that what she did tell me, I didn't pick up on. Right. Um, so I've tried to be much more careful since then about the clues of what I've developed more of an understanding of the clues people give you that this could be going on. Wow. One of those clues as a therapist is if you begin noticing that these folks talk about even harder things. They're not necessarily going to start out sessions in, in telling you about trauma, right? but they may say this happened or that happened as, if you ask them about it, and they have no emotion about it. They are even could be smiling at you or kind of looking at you like, well, this isn't a big deal. Right. I had a man years ago now, about two or three years ago, laughing, telling me that his very alcoholic, abusive mother used to throw big rocks at him in their driveway to tell him to get the heck out of the house and go away. And she didn't want to see his face for two or three days. And he was laughing. He said, yeah, that taught me a lot. You know, I've learned to not wear out my welcome, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what he said. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, you know, if someone threw rocks at your son or daughter and told him to get the heck out, would you think that was funny? And he goes, of course not. And I said, so why are you laughing? Yeah. What's going on? Well, he had some traits of perfectly hidden depression. Wow. And he had never even, he'd never even thought to have compassion with himself. And that's one of huge clues. 
Right. Just... These folks really struggle to have the same kind of compassion they have for themselves, for others. They, they can't do it for themselves. Like not having any room for their own feelings. Right. Wow. So... And so they often, in fact, my most recent podcast, which I know we're going to talk about my podcast in a minute, but is on how you, you know, how you can actually have some real diagnosable anxieties um, like OCD tendencies or eating disorders or whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. and also identify with perfectly hidden depression. Because right. what will happen sometimes is people then adopt or, or develop actual anxiety disorders because they're holding back so much on, or, it, you know, they'll have nightmares or they'll drink too much because they're trying to handle what they their gut knows is there internally, but they just don't know how to cope with it or tolerate it in any other way. Oh, wow. And so you say you, um, you treat, how do you go about treating perfectly hidden depression? Um, Mm -hmm. when someone isn't even really aware that they are depressed and you don't want to outright scare them and say you you're you seem like depressed when that's something they yeah. have never identified no they've gone screaming out of your office probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's interesting what what you just asked me i went to a little gathering of psychologists last night here in northwest arkansas and another therapist who i've known for quite a long time had read the book and he was you know saying it was good and and he said you know we all know all of us therapists who have experience know that this exists it's just you've put a name to it yeah and I said, yeah, and but I still, I didn't, I mean, it was a party, so we didn't get into a serious discussion, right. but I think that often we do miss it. It may, we may be able to figure it out over time, but I do think we miss it as well. Yeah. And so um, the way you go about treating it, I mean, the, the book is actually, and the book is called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. That's a mouthful. Um, and where can the book is actually order a it? workbook? Is I have sixty-two exercises and reflections. It is chock full oh, wow. of of things to try. And I'm a very proactive therapist. I'm a very direct. Let's let's go try this. My little saying is what What do you actually have control over? And so, what can you do about it actually? And we start out very slowly by even considering telling one person that you're maybe not who they think you are. You may not be ready to say, you know, some of the deeper, darker things, but could you at least say to a really good, trusted friend, you know, sometimes I put a face on that really I don't want to put on, or sometimes I don't want to go to a party, or I, the last thing I want to do is chair this committee, and yet I still do it. Yeah. So little because I steps. feel, you know, and they'll say, well, tell me more about it. And you, you can always go, you know, I'm not ready yet to tell you more. I, it feels hugely risky to me to even tell you that. Right. So, but you also begin then to do some work. You know, the, the job of, I, I think a good way to think about it, Stephanie, is that when you have someone is, who's classically depressed, they're very focused on what's going inside, going on inside of them. Mm-hmm. They're very focused on their – in fact, depression can can look like self-involvement because it's just so hard to 
engage with your environment and engage with others when you are severely despairing and despondent and depressed. Right. The work with someone with perfectly hidden depression is almost the opposite of that. You don't want with the classic depression you're trying to get someone to engage less with or to let go of some of their internal um focus right. and to get focused more on what's going on in their lives and with others and get their thinking clear and their reasoning clear and work through their sadness so that they can begin to let go of it with perfectly hidden depression you want them to connect with it <laughs> right they are experts at not connecting with it so the, the 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 whole direction of things is the opposite as it is with classic depression and once they do sort of open up to someone little by little what happens if they do get a negative reaction like you said you know you can open up to a family member and they can say well you're just being really selfish that you're thinking about suicide well, that and... that family that's a great point that family member may be part of the dynamic that right. where you developed it in the first place interesting so you know you the, the, i think i said you someone who's really trusting not someone who's part of the situation or the environment you know, how many times have I had patients, and I'm not knocking faith, I'm, I've am i been in church and had faith myself of my own kind, And but how many people have come to me and said, I tried to talk to my pastor about it, about this, and they said, well, you just need to pray more. Right. And so they are shamed for the issue. Right. And so you don't want to go to someone who's going to shame you for the issue. You want to go to someone who you think can talk vulnerably and, and openly about themselves as well. You've seen them do it. You've heard them do it. And, of course, therapy is a safe place to do that within. You know, a lot of people who come – now, a fair amount of people are coming to me now who identify with this and saying, what can I do about it? And, you know, just coming in and talking to me is the first step. But mm-hmm. then we began looking at they've got to go back and, and understand how this got developed, and so they need to do some – you know, work on their past. Right. They need to have compassion. They need to have self-acceptance. Brene Brown's work is wonderful when she talks about the power of this kind of vulnerability. Maybe these folks have never shown any anger before. Mm-hmm. So that may be some place where we begin to mm, gently sort of go forward and risk just a little bit. Um, maybe they've... Uh, not a real serious kind of example comes to mind, but it was very serious for her. I worked with a woman years ago who told me that she'd never celebrated a birthday the way she wanted to do. She'd celebrated her birthday the way her neighborhood expected her to, which was with a cocktail party. Okay. Everybody had birthdays and everybody had cocktail parties on their birthdays. She said, I hate those cocktail parties. So she invited her family on her birthday to go to the park and swing. She said, I love, I miss being a kid sometimes. I don't let myself play very much. I want to go have a picnic with people I love and I want to swing on the swings and I want to run and I want to, you know, I want to send balloons up into the air. And that's what she did. Wow. And she said it was incredibly freeing. And all her friends and the neighbors said, you're not having a cocktail party? And she said, no, I don't like them. Doing something that made her happy. See what I mean? It's like trying to break the mold. Right. Um, Very gently, carefully. You don't do this work really, really quickly because 
you have to remember that this is the thing that has kept you feeling safe. Right. This perfectionism is what has kept you pulled together. And when you begin unraveling a little bit, it can be very frightening in some ways. Right, absolutely. So you, it is a gentle journey. Uh, that's why there's 62 reflections. I read a review on Goodreads the other day. She, this wow. girl said it was, she was very complimentary of the book. But she said, it's like every other page, there's a exercise. <laughs> and, and I said, that's because it's so important to touch on so many bases, your childhood, your current relationships, um, whether you've had trauma or not. Um, if you had had have trauma, do you really need to go see a therapist rather than trying to do the work yourself? Right. You need to look at your own fear of commitment. You need to look at the rules you're following that you no longer, i.e., I have to have a cocktail party on my birthday <laughs> to much more serious rules of I can never be angry. I must always look happy. I must always count my blessings, um, whatever rules you're living by. Right. And then it's you just really to, unpacking you know, yourself. Right. And then the hard part comes, then you got to change. <laughs> You've got to risk right. <laughs> coming out of your shell and, um, um, and trying to, you know, and people literally will tell me I will lose everyone. Everyone will lose respect for me if they begin to figure out that I have some of the same problems they have. Right. And I'm like, well, that's not been my experience. I've been open about having a history of anorexia and panic disorder, and I've been married more than once. And, you know, what I find is that when I'm open about that stuff, that people go, well, thank goodness, you're just like the rest of us. Yeah. You know, you struggle, you sweat, you fail, you, um, and you also sometimes are successful. And not one doesn't define you more than the other one does. Right. It takes the power away from that, that stigmatized title almost. You got it. Becomes That's exactly a norm. Right. Yeah. So I just want to make sure my followers know that they can pre-order your book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Actually, or... it's out now. Oh, it's so out. Okay, great. It. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been perfect. out since November the 1st. Amazing. So All they of can... three months or four months, I guess, almost. Great. So they can order it now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any local bookstore. And it's and it's uh, it seems like such a good read because I think whether you suffer from perfectly hidden depression, I think it's important just to know what it is in case people around you suffer from it. And you can kind of identify that with those friends that just never seem to be shaken by anything i've had plenty of spouses write to me what do you suggest i do right you know how do i introduce this topic to my wife or my husband but also stephanie you know our children model themselves after what they see us do right absolutely and if you are modeling that you never struggle that you always have a bright, shiny face on. Again, I'm all about optimism. I'm all about living in the glass half full. Mm-hmm. I, you don't want to be a, a, you know, what's that figure in Winnie the Pooh, an Eeyore. Right. You know? um, at the same time, knowing that you have the, the tolerance and the capability of also connecting with pain and with sadness and sorrow and disappointment. And you model that for your children. Right. 
they see you disappointed. They see you struggling. They see you saying, yeah, I'm just really sad. Um, or I'm confused or I, I feel completely overwhelmed or whatever it is. Then, then when they feel that way, they are so much more likely to come to you. Right. They see that it's um, okay to feel emotions and have this like emotional maturity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when when there is a death by suicide of a teenager, all our TV channels, and that's fine, but all of them will will throw up these criteria that you must watch for, and and they're they're good criteria. There's nothing wrong with them. You want to pay attention to are their grades slipping? You know, is their drug use? You know, has it? Are they now using drugs? Or, you know, all the things have they isolated? Are they hanging out with people they've never hung out with before? I mean, what's going on? They're dressing differently. All those things. But what they don't say is, are you modeling for your kids what it's like to talk about and to reveal and to to be okay with your own vulnerability? And if you're not, that's a problem. Right. Absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit more about hypnotherapy? Because I'm interested in how that works i mean i don't know well, that's many a topic people... in and of itself yeah i don't know many people um, who have done it so i it's interesting mm-hmm. i've always been interested in just the concept of it but do you apply it to those with um perfectly hidden depression or do you use it towards more I, I, outright i only use uh hypnosis um i've been trying hypnosis and emdr mm-hmm. although i've backed off of emdr but uh, it's a wonderful treatment for trauma. I just haven't had time to keep my training up to date. So right. I don't do it currently. I did it for two or three years and it was great. I use hypnosis with people, one, who are who are open to it. Some people it's they think it's too weird. It's not weird, but they think it's too weird. I mean you know, I'm in Arkansas. I'm not in California. So um there's a there's a different zeitgeist here. Right. Um, <laughs> but hypnosis works if people want it to work. Um, the people that you see on stage and they've gone to go have a good time and there's somebody doing a hypnotherapy and they make them quack like a duck. There's a part of that person that, that wants to go along with it. Um, in fact, I've had people tell me that they've been quote unquote hypnotized on stage and they just go on and act like the person wants them to act, um, but quite consciously. Um, but I've been hypnotized before, mm-hmm. several times actually, and I, got, I remember started laughing the first time because the guy said, "Pretty soon your right arm will raise into the air, and yet your conscious mind will have told it what to do." And sure enough, in about thirty seconds, here comes my arm up in the air. I started wow. laughing because <laughs> I was like, "What the heck's happening?" Wow. Um, we have a part of our mind that is listening, that is tuned in, that is we are not conscious of. And so you use hypnosis to help people when um, I use it, when um, they just can't seem to uh, address some kind of change they want to make. And I get the sense that there's a part of them that's really very frightened of doing that or that they want to do it, but they have us, I don't know, I'm kind of using my gut in making those decisions. Um, I've I've had great success with it, with things like uh, nightmares, Mm -hmm. um, PTSD, um, um, 
all kinds of things, um, just anxiety in general. Um, and I, I, I'm not an expert in it. I, I do it. I've gotten some really good training in it. And, and so I use it, but I am also a big believer in, in just in talk therapy. And so I use it more in an ancillary fashion. There are people whose entire practices are hypnosis. Yeah. And I've been to seminars with them, and they swear by it. But in fact, they'll say, "Actually, I, I see our, our patients much for a much shorter period of time than other people. Other clinicians will tell you they see them because you can get at things so much more quickly." And I do think you can. It just depends on the openness of the person to the, you know, if I right. if I'm going to someone who I know does hypnosis as a treatment strategy all the time, then I'm obviously very open to hypnosis. Right. Absolutely. Um, Another question I have is, being that you're located in the South, do you notice a difference in people seeking treatment versus versus up in the North or like really big cities? I think it's more of a, uh, of a, consequence of the metropolitan area more than a rural area than it is the south right because I I moved from Dallas and I got my training there and I was actually in practice there for about a year and a half two years Um, and people would practically put a badge on their you know lapels I've been to therapy today you know it was very it was a very hip and cool thing therapy (laughs) You know, you. I got to Arkansas, and I realized that people didn't want to be seen in the waiting room. Wow. Um, and so I had to have a separate entrance for the waiting room so that people could – and an exit so people could exit in a way that they didn't have to go by other people that they might know or – you know, it's a smaller community. So I don't I, – I know what you're talking about, and I also think probably we're right in the middle of the Bible Belt. Right. Again, I'm looking – sounding like I'm in – you know, dissing religion. I'm not at all, but I think a lot of times more conservative religions don't espouse talking about problems in the way that therapy does. Right. Um, yeah. They 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 more espouse you know that they believe that your faith should be enough, um, and so it's a little harder in the Bible Belt to find um, people that are not judgmental about therapy. So I don't think it's much in the South. It's rural areas in Bible Belt. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of they look to their their pastor or minister to talk about problems and then, you know, look to prayer and things like that. So that makes sense. Right. And just as, you know, in rural areas, I mean, probably I'm, I'm sure there's some sociological research about this, but that whole idea of um, stoicism and, um, you know, you don't, you don't talk about, it. you don't air your dirty laundry and right. you, you don't, um, you know, you buck up. I think probably that whole, uh, genre of living your life, which, you know, I'm, again, I'm all about, um, resilience and, um, I just think you can both be extremely resilient and you can admit vulnerability all at the same time. I don't think they are, I think they can coexist easily. I've seen it. I know it can coexist. Absolutely. Um, so tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast because you've had a podcast for a while, I'm sure, and it's called the Self Work Podcast, and I've mm-hmm. subscribed. I'm 
very interested in everything you have to say. So I think oh, my goodness. listeners Thank will be too. Um, but tell me a little bit about like what you do on your podcast. Sure. I actually love doing the podcast. I started it in 2016 and per my usual habit, I kind of jumped into the deep end, really not even knowing what I was getting into. I'd listened right. to a couple of podcasts, so I thought, I'm ready. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> and I, I, I took a training, a month-long training, and then I discovered how hard audio engineering is. And so I hired an audio engineer. Um, I talk mostly about, well, actually, usually I'm inspired to talk about what I talk about because me and my patients have been talking about it. Or something has happened in my personal life or the personal lives of someone I know about. Um, for example, I had a loved one going through something that was difficult for them two or three weeks ago. And it, it involved a lot of grief. And, and I so I talked about how a lot of times with endings and beginnings and divorces and moves and um all those kinds of just transitions in life that we can both have grief and we can have um, anticipation, positive anticipation, right. and that that both can can be felt simultaneously. That you're not, you know, that those things are okay. And I've talked about everything from divorce to affairs to um, PTSD to um, panic disorder into gosh everything right that I know anything about there are things I don't know anything about or know very little about yeah. I'm not going to tout myself as an expert for that interestingly enough I've tried to invite some guests on because I although I often use research and and books and and quotes and things like that from other people that I find intriguing or interesting or um, revealing um, I, I, I also have many people that I admire a lot in, that are doing some great things in the mental health community, and I had some of them on, and then I asked my listeners, well, what they think about the switch to doing interviews, and right. the only response I got was, I don't like it. Oh, wow. Because it, Interesting. It, yeah, and they said the interviews were good. There was nothing wrong with the interviews, but they said it's kind of like we were having this private conversation with you. Right. And then all of a sudden somebody else came into the room. Right. It was like and their own doctor. It, so so it's not therapy. Self-work is not therapy, but it's probably one of the closer things you can get to hearing about just what someone like me does all day long and the way we think. Yeah, that's really And great. what therapy may have to offer. So it's very... Um, yeah, I talk about myself some, not a lot. You try to use some examples that are my own life because I think that helps people um, if it's appropriate. And but I talk about my, you know, I, I cover up all obviously all the identities of the people here. Um, I often talk about people I saw a long time ago, right? Because um, I'm kind of a firm believer that a, what a therapist does a lot is we act as a conduit between people we've seen in the past and people who are sitting in front of us, meaning that what I learned through someone else, working with someone else, then I can give that advice and encouragement and experience to someone else. Interesting, yeah. Whereas they may not know anybody that's buried a child. They may not know anyone whose spouse has had an affair. They may not know anyone who's who's dealing with their both parents having Alzheimer's. 
um, they may not know anyone who's in that particular circumstance. Right. But I probably know someone. I've worked with someone who's who's experienced that in their life. And I will say, well, this is an idea that came from, no, I won't say the person, but you know, this is someone, who, this is what worked for him or her, or right. whatever. So, you know, I'm kind of, it's not just, therapists don't have this, you know, incredible amount of wisdom themselves. I mean, gosh, we're just as human as everybody else. What we do have is the experience of talking with hundreds, even thousands of people over the years and what we've learned from watching them. Right. So it's just a, two, it's a two way street. You learn from your patients sure as much as they learn from you. Now that's a huge shift in um, therapy technique. Mm-hmm. It used to be, and this is what I think so many people still think of therapy as you go lie down on the sofa and the therapist says nothing and not right, your absolutely. head. Absolutely. Come back tomorrow, you know, next yeah. week. How do you that feel about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> That is far afield from modern therapy. There are still some psychoanalysts out there, probably mostly on the coasts. But um, here in the flyover states, as the country music scene calls them, um, that doesn't happen much at all. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this has been very informative. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so welcome. uh, I'm passionate about perfectly hidden depression. I know, uh, well, I've... Both sadly and happily, I've actually received emails that have said quite literally, I was going to hurt myself and now I'm going to go into treatment. Wow. So I know that this message is important for many people to hear. Yeah, and absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank and you I get so much. another form through which to talk about it. And I would love for, I do have lots of uh, podcasts on perfectly hidden depression on my own podcast. And yeah. then, of course, the book's available. and. It is a workbook, and um, although it's not called that, but it is definitely a workbook. So Right, and everyone can find um, all your information at drmargaretrutherford.com and download everything. (laughs) Straightforward. (laughs) I like it. Um, But it's great because I think my listeners will really appreciate hearing about this and being able to have somewhere to go to find out more about the information and dive deeper sure. into it. Uh, so. that, there's all my information on the website. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. And have, Thanks for having me. Of Stephanie. course. Really have a great day. And, and just, um, you know, I'll check back in with you and see how things are going in a couple of weeks, I guess, and let okay. you know how my listeners have responded. <laughs> Well, and let me know. Send me the link, and I'll I'll um, post it. So. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure you'll probably get some in influx of followers from my listeners trying to ask you questions <laughs> right after. That'd be so, great. Yeah, that, that's what I'm here for. All so right, that's great. Amazing. All right. Well, have a great day, and I'll look forward Thank to talking so to you again. You too. Bye. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Bye. Uh huh. Bye bye.